This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes originally starred Basil Rathbone as Sherlock and Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson. With Basil Rathbone in mind, I found this little tidbit rather interesting. According to Hollywood legend, Rathbone was Margaret Mitchell's first choice to play Rhett Butler in the film version of her novel Gone with the Wind. The reliability of this story may be suspect, however, as on another occasion, uh, she chose Groucho Marx for the role, apparently in jest. Rathbone actively campaigned for the role, though, but to no avail. Despite his film success, Rathbone always insisted that he wished to be remembered for his stage career. He said that his favorite role was that of Romeo. Most, I think, remember him for his wonderful portrayal of Sherlock Holmes. And now, on with the show. Petri Wine brings you... Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And now for our weekly visit with our good friend and host, Dr. Watson. Good evening, Doctor. Good evening, Mr. Bartell. A bit late. I've been keeping some dinner hot for you. Here, pull up your chair and join me. That's very nice of you. Thanks, Doctor. Are you all set with tonight's story? Yes, my boy. I'm all set, as you call it. As a matter of fact, I was going over my notes on the case just before you arrived. Uh, last week, you hinted that a beautiful girl figured prominently in your adventure. That's quite right, Mr. Bartell. An extremely beautiful girl. In fact, I often used to say to Sherlock Holmes that if I'd been a little younger at the time, I might... Oh, well, you haven't come here to... <laughs> Listen to my personal reminiscences. You want to hear the story that I called The Problem of Tor Bridge. That's what you promised us, Doctor. How did it begin? On a windy morning in October, in, 18, in the 1890s it was, as I was dressing, I observed how the last remaining leaves were being whirled away from the solitary plane tree which graced the yard behind our Baker Street house. I descended to breakfast, prepared to find my companion in depressed spirits, for, like... All great artists, he was easily impressed by his surroundings. But, to my surprise, he was in an unusually gay mood. As I entered the room, he looked up at me and, with a, with a smile, spoke. Good morning, my dear fellow. Hope you slept well. Splendidly, Hank, sir. Oh, I'm so glad. You're very solicitous this morning. I, I think you must have got a new case. <laughs> Am I right? The faculty of deduction is certainly contagious. Yes, I have a new case. After a month of trivialities and stagnation, the wheels revolve once more. Good. Tell me all about it. Well, as yet, there isn't much to tell. Have you ever heard of Neil Gibson? Neil Gibson? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Something to do with gold mining, isn't he? A great deal to do with it, my dear fellow. In fact, he's considered the greatest mining magnet in the world. About five years ago, he bought a large estate in Hampshire. Perhaps you've read of the 
tragic death of his wife. Oh, yes, of course, I remember the case now. She was murdered by a jealous governess who was in her employ, wasn't she? That point will be decided when the lady in question, uh, Grace Dunbar, I believe her name is, comes up for trial at the forthcoming Winchester Assizes. In any case, it's hard for me to see what I can do for my client at this late date. Your client? Oh, yes, I forgot I hadn't told you. I'm getting into your involved habit of telling a story backwards. Mm. Better read this letter. came this morning. Oh, let's have a look. Dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, Miss Dunbar is innocent. I can't see the finest woman in the world go to her death without doing everything possible to save her. I shall call on you at 10.30 tomorrow morning to discuss the matter yours faithfully, Neil Gibson. Gracious me. There you have it, Watson. That is the gentleman I await. Uh, do you know anything about his dead wife? Only the, what I've been reading in the papers. Apparently she was past her prime which was the more unfortunate as this Miss Dunbar, who superintended the education of the two young children, is reputed to be a very attractive young lady. <laughs> Eternal triangle, eh? Well, where did the murder take place? On Gibson's estate in Hampshire. His wife was found in the grounds nearly half a mile from the manor house, late at night, clad in her dinner dress with a shawl over her shoulders and a revolver bullet through her brain. Any weapon found near her? No, there were no clues found at the scene of the crime. What made them suspect the governess? Well, in the first place... There was some very incriminating evidence. A revolver with one discharged chamber, the caliber corresponding with a bullet in the dead woman's head, was found on the floor in Miss Dunbar's wardrobe. Oh, was it? Pretty damaging evidence, Holmes. Mm, so the coroner thought. And to make the case even blacker against Miss Dunbar, the dead woman had a note on her making an appointment at that very spot. And the note was signed by the governess. It seems obvious that the girl's guilty. And the motive's clear. Mr. Gibson would be a great catch for a young girl. Love, fortune, power, all dependent on one life. Possibly, Watson, but circumstantial evidence can be very misleading at times. Ah, there's a gentleman in question, unless I'm very much mistaken, considerably before his time. I can see him from the window here. Formidable-looking fellow. Must be well over six foot tall. <laughs> Judging by the way he's wrenching at that doorbell, he's a man with a violent temper. Mrs. Hudson's opening the door to him now. Ah. Uh, Meet him on the stairs, will you, old chap? We'll take Mrs. Hudson the journey. Uh, sure. Up here, sir. Thank you, Mrs. Hudson. All right. Are you Mr. Sherlock Holmes? No, no, indeed. I'm his colleague, Dr. Watson. Uh, come along in, won't you? Mr. Neil Gibson, I presume? That's right. So you're the great Sherlock Holmes. Uh, <laughs> the adjective is your own, Mr. Gibson. Sit down, won't you? By the way, you may speak uh, quite freely in front of Dr. Watson. Hmm. Well, I may as well begin by telling you that money means nothing to me in this case. You can burn it if it's any use to you in lighting the truth. Miss Dunbar is innocent, and it's up to you to prove it. Just name your fee. Now, Mr. Gibson, my professional charges are on a fixed scale. I don't bury them, except when I omit them altogether. Very well. I imagine that you've read the newspaper reports of the coroner's inquest. Yes, very thoroughly. I don't see that I can add anything that'll help you. But if there are any questions you'd like to ask, I'll answer them. Well, thank you. First, what were the exact relations between you and Miss Dunbar? I suppose you're within your rights in asking such questions, Mr. Holmes? We will agree to suppose so, shall we? Then I can assure you that my relations with Miss Dunbar were always those of an employer towards a young lady with whom he never conversed or even saw, except in the company of his children. Oh. Rather a busy man, Mr. Gibson, and I have no time or taste for aimless conversation. I wish you good morning. What the devil do you mean by this, Mr. Holmes? My dear sir, the case is difficult enough. 
without your giving me false information. Meaning that I lied. I was trying to express it as delicately as possible, but <clears throat> if you insist on the word, I won't contradict you. Why, you confound... Don't be noisy, Mr. Gibson. Please don't be noisy. I find that after breakfast, even the smallest argument is unsettling. I suggest that a stroll in the morning air and a little quiet thought will be greatly to your advantage. I suppose I can't make you take the case, <clears throat> but you've done yourself no good this morning, Mr. Holmes. I've broken stronger men than you. No man ever crossed me and was the better for it. Good morning, Mr. Gibson. You've a great deal yet to learn. <laughs> well, Marcel Holmes, you were unusually severe with him. <laughs> I dislike liars, Watson, and I cannot tolerate arrogance, particularly when it's coupled with great wealth. Now, how did you know about his relations with the governor? I didn't. It was pure bluff. Bluff? <laughs> it certainly worked. Did you come back? Oh, of course he will. He needs my help too badly. He'll probably change his mind before he's halfway down the stairs. Come in. <clears throat> Ah, <laughs> Mr. Gibson, just saying to Dr. Watson that I was certain you'd be back. I've been thinking it over, Mr. Holmes, and I feel that perhaps I was hasty in taking your remarks amiss. Just the same, I can assure you that the relations between Miss Dunbar and me really don't affect this case. Surely that is for me to decide, Mr. Gibson. You see, Mr. Gibson, my friend is like a doctor. He wants every symptom before he can give his diagnosis. Fire away, Mr. Holmes. What is it you want to know? The truth. I can give it to you in very few words. To begin with, I met my wife when I was gold mining in Brazil. Uh, your wife was Brazilian by birth, wasn't she, sir? Yes, doctor, and very beautiful. Well, to make a long story short, I fell in love and married her and brought her to England. After a few years, I realized that we had nothing, absolutely nothing in common. And then I suppose this young governess, Miss Dunbar, arrived on the scene. That's right, Mr. Holmes. Well... The story should be obvious to you from there. You uh, fell in love with this girl, I suppose, sir. Who could help it? Did you suggest marriage to her? Yes. So I knew that my wife would never divorce me. I see. Then you made an utterly insincere proposition to her. Now, look here, Mr. Holmes. I came to you on a question of evidence, not of morals. I'm not asking for your criticism. It's only the young lady's sake that uh, forces me to touch your case at all. Now, tell me, sir. Uh, what is your own opinion as to Miss Dunbar's guilt? It's very black against her. I can't deny that. One explanation of the tragedy did come into my head, Mr. Holmes. I give it to you for what it's worth. Very continue, Mr. Gibson. My wife was bitterly jealous. She was half crazy with hatred. She might have planned to murder Miss Dunbar, or we'll say to threaten a girl with a revolver and so frighten her into leaving us. There might have been a struggle in which the gun exploded and gone off and shot my wife, withholding it. Well, that possibility has already occurred to me. The only obvious alternative to deliberate murder. The revolver, Holmes. It was found on the floor of the governess's wardrobe. Now, Mr. Gibson, I should like to examine your house and the scene of the murder as soon as possible. Certainly, Mr. Holmes. Sergeant Coventry of the local police is still down there. He'll give you any help you may need. Excellent. Watson, old fellow, I'm out for the timetable. We're catching the next fast train to Winchester. <laughs> someone else on the case, I'd rather have you, Mr. Holmes. The yard gets called in, then, then we local police loses all credit for success. Generally gets blamed for the failures. So I've heard that you play straight. <laughs> I know appear in the matter at all, Sergeant Coventry. If I can clear it up, I don't ask to even have my name mentioned. Well, that's handsome of you, I'm sure, and I, I know your friend Dr. Watson can be trusted, too. Oh, don't worry, my dear fellow. We won't steal any of your thunder. It's well, nice and friendly of you, Doctor. Well, come on, gentlemen, I'll walk you down to the bridge. That's where we found Mrs. Gibson's body. 
It's not far from the house here. Well, I must say, Mr. Gibson has a beautiful estate. It must be 60 or 70 acres. Oh, nearly twice that, Doctor. The woods back of the house there belongs to him, too. Mr. Holmes. Yes, Sergeant? There's a question I'd like to ask you. A question I wouldn't ask anyone else. Then please ask it. Don't you think there might be a case against Mr. Gibson himself, sir? I've been considering that possibility. But there, Miss Dunbar's a bit of all right. If you ask me, he wanted his wife out of the way, and the pistol she was shot with was his pistol, you know. Oh, was, uh, was that fact uh, proven? Yes, Doctor. It was one of a pair that he had. One of a pair? Where's the other? Well, Mr. Gibson has a lot of firearms. We never quite matched that particular pistol. But the box was made for two. Well, if it was one of a pair, surely you'd be able to match it. Well, we have them all laid out at the house if you want to look them over. And we'll do that later. Ah, this, I presume, is Tor Bridge. That's right, sir. Found Mrs. Gibson's body lying right here at the approach to the bridge. I see. I gathered from the newspaper report that the shot was fired at very close quarters. Yes, sir, very close. Near the right temple, wasn't it? Just behind it, sir. How did the body lie, Sergeant? Oh, on spec, Doctor. No trace of a struggle, no marks, no weapon. The note from Miss Dunbar was clutched in her left hand. Clutched, you say? Yes, sir. We, we could hardly open the fingers to get at it. Ah, that's the greatest importance. It excludes the idea that anyone could have placed the note there after death in order to furnish a false clue. What did the note say, Sergeant? Little enough, Doctor. It just said, uh, I will be at Tor Bridge at 9 o'clock, and it was signed Grace Dunbar. Miss Dunbar admit writing it? Oh, yes, sir. What was her explanation? She wouldn't say nothing. Said she was saving her defense for the trial. Yes, it seems odd that Mrs. Gibson was still touching that note. Seems perfectly natural to me. Oh, come now, old fellow. Argue the thing out logically. If the letter is genuine, it was certainly received sometime before the tragedy, say an hour or two. Why then was the dead woman still clasping it in her left hand? Why should she carry it so carefully? She certainly didn't need to refer to the note at all at the interview. Doesn't strike you as rather strange? Well, now you put it that way, it does seem a little peculiar. Hello. Did you notice this, Sergeant? Oh, you mean that chip out of that stone on the underside of the parapet of the bridge, sir? Yes, I noticed it. Uh, didn't think nothing of it, though. Uh, it's a very large chip. Yes, but it's been done recently. That is how the stonework is white just here. It took some violence to do that. Hand me a cane, Watson, will you? Here you go. Thanks. Yes. It's a hard knock. And in a curious place, too. What is it? Fifteen feet from where we found the body, Mr. Dell. Oh, yes, Holmes, I don't see how it could have any connection with Mrs. Gibson's well, murder. It hasn't, but it's a point worth noting. There were no footprints, you say, Sergeant? None, Mr. Holmes. The ground was as hard as iron. It's been a very dry summer, and we haven't had any rain to speak yes, of this. Yes, mm. Well, Sergeant, I'm much obliged to you, and now I think we'll get back to the house. Right. Uh, Cesar will share where the firearms are, sir. Oh, uh, who is Cesar? Funny kind of a bloke. Brazilian, he is. Brazilian, eh? Like Mrs. Gibson? Yes, Mr. Holmes, sir. Uh, Comes from the same town that she does, as a matter of fact. Something very fishy about him, if you ask me. Now, if you'll excuse me, gentlemen, I'm going to take a little stroll around the grounds. You started me on a new train of thought in this case, Mr. Vellum. I'm delighted, Sergeant. I'll get back to the house. firearms in Mr. Gibson's possession, eh, Cesar? Mm. Except for the revolver that is missing from the case. Yes, so I say I see him. Well, I've never seen such a collection of guns and revolvers in my life. 
Mr. Gibson had many enemies, senor. He always sleep with a loaded pistol beside his bed. She's a man of great violence. There have been times when all of us were afraid of him. Did you ever witness physical violence towards Mrs. Gibson? No, senor. I cannot say that I have. But I have heard him say many terrible things to her. She would taunt her in front of we servants. I have heard him do it many times. Thank you, Cesar. That will be all. Going to vain, senor. No, Holmes, I do think the case against Miss Dunbar looks very black. I should agree with you if it were not for one fact. The finding of the revolver in her wardrobe. On the soul, Holmes, that seems to me the strongest evidence of all. I think not, old chap. Huh? We must look for consistency. Where there is a, a want of it, we must suspect deception. I don't quite follow you. Suppose for a moment that we visualize you in the character of a woman who in cold, premeditated fashion is about to murder a rival. You've planned it. A note has been written. The victim has come. You have a, a weapon. The crime is well done. It has been workmanlike and complete. You mean to tell me that after carrying out so crafty a crime, you'd be so stupid as to forget to fling the incriminating revolver to the bottom of the stream? Or perhaps in the uh, dense reeds that border it? Would you carefully carry it home? and put it in the first place that would be searched? Your wardrobe? Well, perhaps in the excitement of no, the moment, one... No, my dear chap, I won't admit that's even possible. When a crime is coolly premeditated, then the means of covering it are coolly premeditated well, also. Well, then if Miss Dunbar didn't shoot Mrs. Gibson, who the devil did? I hope I can give you the answer to that question, Watson, when we've made one further visit. Oh, Lord, where are we going now? To prison, old chap. Prison? Yes, we're going to Winchester Prison to call on Miss Dunbar, I'm certain. But the key to this strange mystery lies in her hands. And now back to Dr. Watson and tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure, The Problem of Tor Bridge. Well, uh, Doctor, did you go to Winchester Prison and see Miss Dunbar? We did, Mr. Bartell. An hour later, I found the two of us sitting in a dank and gloomy cell, talking to one of the most beautiful girls that I've ever seen. Her bright, flashing eyes and her air of quiet confidence seemed sadly out of place in such a setting. Holmes spoke to her quietly, soothingly. Dunbar, tell us of your true relations with the dead woman. She hated me, Mr. Holmes. She hated me with all the passion of her distorted mind. Please tell us exactly what happened on the evening of Mrs. Gibson's death. Well, I, I received a note from her in the morning. A note imploring me to meet her at the bridge after dinner that night. She said she had something important to say to me. Did you keep that note, Miss Dunbar? No, Doctor. She, well, she asked me to destroy the note, so I burned it in the schoolroom grate. I saw no reason for such secrecy, but... Well, I, I did as she asked. Mm, and yet she kept your reply very carefully. It's interesting. Tell me what happened when you met her that night. When I reached the bridge, she was waiting for me. I, I won't tell you what she said, but she poured out her whole wild fury and burning horrible words. I did not. I couldn't. It was dreadful even to look at her. She was like an insane woman, standing there screaming disgusting insults at me. I put my hands to my ears and rushed away. Where was she standing when you left her? 
Within a few yards of the spot where her body was found later. And yet, presuming she met her death shortly after you left her, you heard no shot. No. No, I heard mm. nothing. But I was so upset, Mr. Holmes, that I rushed straight back to my room. Did you leave it again that night? Yes. When the alarm came that Mrs. Gibson was dead, I ran out with the others. Did you see uh, Mr. Gibson? Yes, Doctor. He had just returned from the bridge when I saw him. He had sent for the doctor and the police. Uh, this pistol that you found in your room, you ever seen it before? Never, Mr. Holmes, I swear it. When was it found, Miss Dunbar? Next morning, when the police made their search. It was on the floor of my wardrobe where I keep my shoes. Mm, you had no idea how long it had been there. Well, it hadn't been there the morning before. How do you know? Because I had tidied up the wardrobe that day. I see. Then someone must have come into your room and placed the pistol there in order to incriminate you. I'm certain of it. Oh, well, uh, when could they have done that? Well, it, it, it could have been at mealtime. Or when I was in the schoolroom with the children. Yes. Ms. Dunbar, on exam examining the scene of Mrs. Gibson's death, I noticed that a piece of stonework on the underside of the parapet of the bridge had been broken away. Can you suggest any possible explanation for that? Oh, surely it must have been a mere coincidence, Mr. Holmes. Possibly. But why should it appear at the very time of the tragedy and at the very place? Could it possibly be the... Why, yes, of course. Idiot. Why didn't I think of it before? Come along, Watson. Where are we going, Holmes? Back to Fort Bridge, old fellow. As fast as we can get there. What have you found out, Mr. Holmes? The answer to this mystery, I hope, my dear young lady. It will get news before the day is out. And meanwhile, take my assurance that the clouds are lifting and that the light of truth is breaking through. <laughs> You're soon back here. What have you found out? Get on a few moments. Have you got my message? Oh, yes, sir. Here you are. All the twine. What you wanted for, I can't imagine. Uh, you'll soon see, Sergeant. Uh, Watson, I uh, have some recollection that you usually go armed on these excursions of ours. Yes, I'm carrying my revolver. Why? Uh, give it to me, old chap, will you? Uh, Thanks. Thank you. I believe your revolver may have a very intimate connection with the mystery we're investigating. <laughs> You're joking. Now, Watson, I'm very serious. Huh? I have a test to make. The test is successful. Miss Dunbar will be free before nightfall, and the test will depend on the conduct of this revolver of yours. Yes, take the precaution of unloading it. Uh-huh. There we are. Now, Sergeant, ball of twine, please. Should I do what you was up to, sir? I tie one into the twine like this, to the handle of the revolver. So... Sergeant, see if you can find me a heavy stone, will you? Oh, Roger, sir. Holmes, what are you doing? Trying to reconstruct the killing of Mrs. Gibson. But you've seen me miss the mark before, Watson. I have an instinct for such things, and yet it has sometimes played me false. It seemed a certainty when it first flashed across my mind in the Dunbar cell. But one drawback of an active mind is that one can always conceive alternative explanations which would make our center false one. And yet, oh, well... We can but try. Is my stone, Mr. Holmes? Thank you, Sergeant. Yes, now, sir. I tie the other end of the twine to the stone. Wait a minute. Like that. Splendid. Uh, Sergeant, will you please take the stone and stretch the twine across the parapet of the bridge there so that the stone will swing just clear of the water on the other side of the bridge? Right, sir. I'll stand on the spot where Mrs. Gibson's body was found. That's it, Sergeant. Over the parapet. How's that, Mr. Holmes? The stone swinging about eight feet above the water. Splendid. Now, Watson, watch closely. I raise the revolver to my head. Careful, Holmes, careful. Nobody, old chap's not loaded. 
Now, let us imagine I am the late Mrs. Gibson. I raise the revolver to my head and fire it. Instantly, my fingers release that weapon. There's your answer, Watson. Great. Stop the revolver flashed back out of your hand. Struck the parapet's bridge and then the weight of the stone flipped it over into the water. Was there ever a more exact demonstration? Come on, old fellow. You're a blooming magician, Mr. Holmes. That's what you are. A blooming magician. Look at that. There's the second ship on the stonework, the parapet here. Same size as the first. And the murder of Mrs. Gibson... It wasn't murder at all. It was suicide. What? We can follow the various steps quite clearly. A note was extracted very cleverly from Miss Dunbar. A note which made it appear that she had chosen the scene of the crime. Mrs. Gibson, in her anxiety that the note should be discovered, somewhat overdid it by holding it in her hand to the last. That alone should have excited my suspicions earlier than it did. So she stole one of her husband's revolvers and planted the other one in Miss Dunbar's wardrobe. Exactly. After discharging one of the cartridges, which she could easily do in the woods without attracting suspicion, she then went down to the bridge, where she contrived this exceedingly ingenious method of getting rid of her weapon. When Miss Dunbar appeared, she used her last breath in pouring out her hatred, and then, when the girl had left, carried out her terrible purpose. In the missing report... You'll find it uh, with the aid of a grappling hook at the bottom of the stream, and also the stone and the string, uh, with which this vindictive woman attempted to, dis to disguise her own crime and fasten a charge of murder on an innocent victim. Yes, Sergeant, and don't forget while you're at it that my revolver's down there, too. Oh, no, don't worry, Doctor. I'll get some grappling hooks right away. <laughs> I must say, Holmes, you solved this case brilliantly. Quite brilliantly. Uh, I disagree, old chap. And I fear that you will not improve my reputation by adding the case of the Torbridge mystery to your annals. Oh, nonsense. But that's ridiculous. Oh, no, it isn't, old boy. I've been sluggish in my mind and wanting in that mixture of imagination and reality, which is the very basis of my art. I confess that the chip in the stonework was a sufficient clue to suggest the true solution, and I blame myself for not having attained it sooner. Well, Holmes, personally, I agree with the sergeant's opinion of you. Oh? What was that, old fellow? You're a blooming magician, Mr. Holmes. That's what you are, a blooming magician. Doctor, Holmes really was a magician. That is, if you did find Mrs. Gibson's revolver and your own in the stream. Oh, you found them all right. I don't think I'll tell you the story otherwise, do you? Uh, what do you take me for, anyway? Well, now that you ask, I'll tell you. I take you for a very charming gentleman, a wonderful oh, storyteller, sorry. and a fine host. Oh, yes, I do. I really, I... Well, you are a gentleman of the old school. Oh, and you do old. tell a fine story. <laughs> you flatter me, you... Uh... And you are a perfect host. Oh, that meal we had tonight was wonderful. Oh, it was, eh? And, um, that, that wine, what kind was it? It was Petri wine, and you know it. <laughs> and I should have known that you were leading up to something. Mr. Bartell, you should be ashamed of yourself. You will do anything to get a chance to talk about Petri wine. Oh, I can't say that I blame you. Well, honestly, Doctor, I meant everything I said. But you don't really want me to stop talking about Petri wine, do you? After all, it's worth talking about, isn't it? What other wine is made with the loving care that goes into Petri wine? Don't forget, Petri wine is made by the Petri family. Winemaking is their business. Why, they've been making wine for generations. Handing down from father to son from father to son, all their skill and knowledge and experience. You can be sure the Petri family really knows plenty about the fine art of turning luscious grapes into delicious wine. That's why, whether you want a wine for before dinner, with dinner, or for any time, you can't go wrong with a Petri wine. 
because Petri took time to bring you good wine. And now, Dr. Watson, what new story are you planning to tell us next week? Well, next week, Mr. Bartell, I'm going to tell an adventure that Holmes and I had amid the oriental magnificence of a Maharaja's palace in India. India? Sounds intriguing. Uh, what were you and Sherlock Holmes doing out there, Doctor? Well, you'll have to wait until uh, next week to answer that question. But I can tell you that it was one of the weirdest problems that we ever had to solve. I call the story The Vanishing Elephant. <laughs> Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure is written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and is adapted from the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Problem of Tor Bridge. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Oh, the Petri family took the time to bring you such good wine. Oh, when you eat and when you cook, remember Petri wine. To make good food taste better, remember... Pet, pet, Petri. Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petrie family. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Stay tuned for Jack Benny next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for the Jack Benny Show. J-E-L-L-O! The Jell-O program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Kenny Baker, and yours truly, Don Wilson. The orchestra opens a program with You've Got Everything. Do you remember this popular song called You've Got Everything? Well, you know, that song might well have been dedicated to Jell-O, for really there is one dessert that does have everything. Color, bright, sunshiny, and gay. Flavor, extra rich, cool, and refreshing, as tempting as the real ripe fruit. Ease and speed, for Jell-O dissolves instantly and sets quickly. Economy, Jell-O costs only a few cents a package, and one package serves the average family generously. And variety. For Jell-O offers you dozens and dozens of delicious new dishes. Serve it plain in a colorful mold of beauty. Garnish it with whipped cream or any seasonal fruits. Use it for salads, for Jell-O makes swell salads that even the men folks go for. Yes, sir, one box of Jell-O is filled with real kitchen magic, the kind that every busy woman appreciates. So ask your grocer tomorrow for Jell-O. Look for those big red letters on the box. They spell Jell-O, and Jell-O spells a treat. That was you 
You've Got Everything, played by the orchestra. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we bring you Hollywood's newest glamour boy, Jack Benny. Thank you. Hello again. This is Jack Benny talking. And, Don, I appreciate your calling me a glamour boy, but really, that's not quite my classification. Oh, it isn't? No, Don. According to the latest publicity from Paramount, I'm the oomph man. <laughs> oomph. The oomph man? Yeah, you see, Don, a glamour boy is merely good looking. But when a star has, in addition to that, a certain charm and appeal to women, then he becomes an oomph man, which is me. You better stay out of the hot sun, brother. <laughs> Oh, you're here already. Listen, Phil, I'm not a fortune teller and I'm not psychic, but I see you soon scattering your brilliant remarks in greener pastures. And hello. <laughs> you know, Don, ever since we switched the ending of the picture, uh, Man About Town, and I married Dorothy L'Amour, Phil has been a wreck. So jealous because I'm a ladies' man. Me jealous? Why, every girl you go out with regards you as a big brother. Well, that's part of my technique. I sneak up on them. <laughs> So don't be so sour grapesy. Oh, uh, by the way, Jack, last week you had an argument with the studio about Rochester. Are you going to let him be in the picture? Rochester? Oh, he's in it already, Don. And am I having trouble with him at the house? The airs he's been putting on. Oh, getting ritzy, huh? Ritzy? He bought a sport coat yesterday with three belts in the back. <laughs> Not only that, it's getting so he won't wear anything but silk underwear. Well, it's all right for him to wear silk underwear, isn't it? Not when the monogram says J.B. <laughs> no, sir. Jack, I can't understand why you keep Rochester when he causes you so much trouble. Why don't you fire him? Oh, I can't. You see, he found the treasure map of my backyard and won't give it back. <laughs> but I'll get him in time. Hello, Jack. Oh, hello, Mary. Say, Mary, have you heard the latest? They changed the ending of the picture, and instead of Phil getting Dorothy L'Amour... I'm the one that marries her. Yes, I know. She's sick about it. <laughs> She's nothing of the kind. You're just making that up because Dorothy happens to be very fond of me. In fact, the other day she gave me an autograph, sarong. <laughs> How do you look in it? Gorgeous. <laughs> Are you surprised? Oh, Mary, Jack's got a new one. He says that everybody at Paramount's calling him the oomph man. Yeah, but did Jack tell you how he got the title? Quiet. The director punched him in the stomach and he went, oomph. <laughs> That's not the reason at all. They call me the oomph man because in this picture I'm virile and rugged. Oh, yeah? <laughs> tell him what happened when you shot the wedding scene yesterday afternoon. Oh, well, that was just a novelty, that's all. Something different. What was it, Mary? Yeah, tell him. Oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> after Jack marries Dorothy, he's supposed to pick her up in his arms and carry her across the threshold. Mary. Well, Jack tried and tried, but he couldn't lift her. <laughs> and what happened? <laughs> she carried him across. <laughs> Mary, I told you it was just a novelty, something original. Well, say, Jack, did you feel kind of silly being carried in a girl's arms? Well, I didn't mind being in her arms, Don, but when she started to rock me, I thought that was going to... <laughs> anyway, let's drop the whole thing because we've got an important sketch to do tonight. Where's Kenny? Hey, Kenny. Kenny. What? It's time for your song. Well, wait till I get through. The drummer's teaching me how to play poker. Well, tell him to give you your shirt back and come over here. 
Okay. Phil, I wish you'd tell your boys not to take advantage of Kenny. He's too young to gamble. Oh, yeah? I got over a thousand marbles hid under my mattress. <laughs> I don't care what you've got. I don't want you learning how to play cards. Hmm, I got a fine chance to grow up around here. Never mind. I don't want any more gambling. Now go ahead, young man, and sing your song. I will not. You will, too. I tell you what. I'll match you two songs or nothing. <laughs> Kenny, sing your song and not another word out of you. Hold it a minute. There's the phone. I'll bet five bucks it's for me. Quiet. Hello? Yes? Oh, he's right here, Mrs. Wilson. It's for you, Don. It's your wife. Oh, thanks. Hello, dear. Yes, I know we're having company for dinner. Oh, that's up to you, dear. Any flavor will do. Well, strawberry or raspberry would be swell. Don, we've got a long plate. We haven't had cherry in a long time. What about orange, darling? Uh, Don, we've got a long plate. Oh, I know. Let's have lemon. Don't forget lime. You might as well get them all in. (laughs) Well, look, sweetheart, it's all up to you if you want a real tempting and economical dessert. Give me that phone. Hello, Mrs. Wilson. Look for the big red letters on the box and hang up. We've got a plate of it. Sing, Kenny. That was a frame-up if I ever heard one. When the somber shadows of the night grow dim And the daylight dawns on the hillock's brim In the black of the night by the light of the moon On the top of the day when the clock is at noon No matter what the hour, I'm a slave In the grip of your palm Melancholy mood Forever haunts me, steals upon me in the night Forever taunts me, oh what a lonely soul am I Stranded high and dry by melancholy mood Gone is every joy and inspiration Tears are all I have to show No consolation, all I can see is grief and gloom Till the crack of doom, oh, melancholy moon. Deep in the night I search for a trace of a lingering kiss, a warm embrace. But love is a whimsy, as flimsy as lace, and my arms embrace an empty space. Melancholy moon, why must you blind me, pity me and break the chains, the chains that bind me, won't you release and set me free, bring her back to me, oh, melancholy moon. Deep in the night I search for a trace of a lingering kiss. A warm embrace, but love is a whimsy, as flimsy as lace, and my arms embrace an empty space. Why must you blind me, pity me, and break the chains? The chains that bind me, won't you release and set me free? Bring her back to me, oh, melancholy moon. 
Melancholy Mood, sung by Kenny Baker. And Kenny, that was a swell song, a natural for you. I threw a seven, huh? Kenny. <laughs> and now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a great treat in store for you. Last week, the Benny Gypsies gave you their interpretation of Gunga Dean, which took place in faraway India. And tonight, to show you that we get around, uh, we take you to Boston, Massachusetts and present our version of Daryl F. Zanuck's outstanding 20th Century Fox production, that grand tribute to a great man and famous scientist, Alexander Graham Bell. <laughs> mm, thank you. Can I go home now, Mr. Benny? I'm all in. <laughs> uh, not yet, JoJo. <laughs> Now, as you all know, uh, Don Amici portrayed the famous inventor in the picture. So in our version, I will naturally play the title role. May I ask why? Certainly. Now, this picture also featured... <laughs> I said, why should you be Alexander Graham Bell? Well, for one thing, Phil, the part fits me. I used to be an inventor myself, wasn't I, Mary? Oh, Jack, you weren't the first one to think of putting a mouse trap in a wallet. <laughs> I don't mean that. Years ago, when I was in the Navy, I invented a chin rest for portholes. <laughs> they went over very big. Now, getting back to our play, Mary, you will be my wife, as portrayed on the screen by that sweet, gorgeous, beautiful, and talented young actress, lovely Loretta Young. Well, if you think she's so good, why didn't you get her? Don't think I didn't try. We're quite good friends, you know, but she had a previous <laughs> engagement. Listen, Dreamer, you're not even acquainted with Loretta Young. I'm not, eh? It might interest you to know, Phil, that I've got Loretta's address right in my little book. What book? Guide to the Movie Stars Home. <laughs> I mean my little red book. Now, Kenny... Yes, Jack? Uh, Kenny, when the play opens, I'm a poor, struggling inventor, and you're a wealthy businessman who finances my experiments. Uh, do you think you can handle it? I'll lay you three to one, I can. Now, Kenny... <laughs> For the last time, I don't want to hear another word about gambling. You're too young. Anyway, you're going to be my backer. And as I was saying, Mary, you're going to be my patient, loyal wife. We've had a hard struggle. I'm trying to invent the telephone. And everybody thinks I'm a madman. They think I'm eccentric. They think I'm crazy. But you, my little wife, what do you think? What do you think? <laughs> Mary, will you please get in the mood for Pete's sake? <laughs> huh? Now, the, uh, the locale... Say, Alexander, am I going to be in this? Yes, Phil, you're going to be my assistant who helps me invent the telephone. But, Jack, I'm a musician, not a mechanic. Listen, Phil, I'd rather have you tinker with my toaster than tamper with Tannhauser. <laughs> Any day. Now, our dramatic offering will go on immediately after a number by... Oh, come in. Hello, Mr. Benny. Hello, Rochester. What do you want? Say, boss, are you in a pleasant frame of mind this evening, or are you cloaked in bloom? <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling very good, Rochester. Why? Well, I got some news that may turn your damper down. What? What are you talking about? Boss, remember when you and I were driving down to the studio in your car tonight? Yes. And when the motor kept stalling, you got mad and said... You wish somebody would steal this thing? Yes. Well, hallelujah, you're a pedestrian.
pedestrian. That's from the Latin. I know where it's from. <laughs> you mean to say somebody stole my car? Well, all I know is I parked the car in front of the studio and went across the street to buy a cigar. Uh-huh. And when I got back, there was nothing there but the anchor. <laughs> oh, that's awful. Now, who... Who would want to steal my car? Somebody that goes... <laughs> Don't be funny. <laughs> My car's been stolen, and it's nothing to clown about. Tell me, Jack, did you have any insurance on it? Only tornado. <laughs> Ding the luck. Rochester, this is all your fault. I'm sorry, boss. Well, it's too late now to be sorry. Now, I want you to go right down to the police station and report the loss. Hurry up. I ain't going near that police station. Why not? I'm behind in my alimony. <laughs> Alimony? Why, Rochester, I didn't know you'd been married. Oh, boss, repeatedly. <laughs> well, that's your business. Now get going. Okay, goodbye. So long. Oh, say, Rochester, I see you're playing a part in our picture. Yeah, that's right. How you coming along? Mr. Harris, I'm in the groove on the beam and dark victory. So long. <laughs> hmm. He's the biggest ham I ever saw. Uh, the biggest, Jack? Yes, the biggest. And I'm going to get out that car back if I have to offer a reward. Play, Phil. Now, where would I go if I were a Maxwell? Talk about home, home never like this. First your arms come stealing, and my heart goes on a roller coaster. Then I get that feeling, like a little piece of toast in a toaster. Gee, but my life would be cold without your delicious hug, keeping me snug as a bug in a rug. Snug as a bug in a rug, played by a mug in his lugs. <laughs> How was that, Phil? Thanks for the plug, slug. Mm. <laughs> going from that neat bit of comedy to our dramatic highlight of the season, <laughs> we are now going to offer our contribution to the annals of scientific progress, that epic of American ingenuity, 
Alexander Graham Bell. Wait for me. (laughs) Now, the locale of our play is Boston, Massachusetts in the year 1870. The scene is the little attic laboratory where we find Professor Bell and his assistant, Mr. Harris, working feverishly on their great invention, the telephone. Mrs. Bell has just entered the room. Curtain. Music. I'll take it. Hello? Alexander Graham Bell's residence. What? No, you can't talk to him. He's busy inventing the telephone. Goodbye. (laughs) I'll say I am. Oh, Mr. Harris. Mr. Harris. Yes, Professor Bell. I think I've got something here. Hand me that duplex circuit repeater and the multiple induction coil. I'll attach them to the supervisory electromagnetic oscillator. You're kidding. (laughs) I am not. Now, give me a hand. Give me a hand with this quadruplex frictional deflector. Okay, here's the metallic cylindrical felicitator. What's that? The screwdriver. Oh, trying to top me, eh? (laughs) Wait a minute. I'll use this little hammer. There, that's coming along all right. Say, Alex, I wish you'd hurry up and invent this telephone. A blonde gave me your number this morning, and I want to call her up. Has she got a friend? Oh, and she's gorgeous. Oh, what am I rushing for? I'm married. I'm so absent-minded. But I'll tell you one thing, Harris. We got to work fast if we expect any more help from our financial baker, Mr. Backer. I mean, our financial backer, Mr. Baker. Now, help me with this vacuum generator. Oh, darling, you look tired. You're working too hard, Alex. Much too hard. I am? Yeah, look at those bags under Harris's eyes. <laughs> oh, well, he got those on his own time. But, darling, I must work hard. I know it's a mad dream. I know it sounds impossible. But I'm going to invent the telephone, or my name ain't Alexander Graham Bell. Come on, Harris. Let's get to work. Come in. Well, what's this? This is the... This is the laboratory. Oh, pardon me. (laughs) Darn these interruptions. Harris. Mr. Harris. Mr. Harris, hand me that annunciator, Magneto. Here you are. Now, hand me that vibrator. Okay, Alex. Did you have a good time last night? Who was there? Oh, it still won't regenerate. They were? Hand me some more of that copper wire. Here you are, Professor. Well, look, Barbara, we'd love to come over, but Alex is still working on that invention of his. How's it coming, Professor? I'm afraid it won't work, Harris. I'm afraid it's a failure. Oh, it's some gadget he calls a telephone, but it'll never be a success. I got another idea, Harris. Hand me that rheostat. All right, Barbara, I'll call you later. Goodbye. I don't know, Harris. The more I work on this, the tougher it seems to get. Sometimes I get so discouraged. Don't give up, Prof. I won't. Come in. Well, hello, Mr. Baker. Hello, Alex. How's everything coming along? I'm making great progress, Mr. Baker. Great progress. You see, it's my theory that if I could make a current of electricity vary in intensity, precisely as the air varies in density during the production of multiple sounds, I should be able to transmit speech electromagnetically. 
Oh, you can talk plainer than that. <laughs> hmm. But unfortunately, Mr. Baker, my financial resources are depleted. And before I can continue with my experiment, I must have additional monetary aid. You mean more cash <laughs> That's a bullseye if I ever heard one. Well, how much do you want? Four million dollars. Yes! <laughs> Oh, I know. I know that sounds like a lot. But you've already given me $32. What's $4 million? <laughs> What do you say? Why don't you gamble with me? You said I was too young. <laughs> that was in the first routine. <laughs> oh, Mr. Baker, if I don't get the money from you, where else can I get it? You mean I'm the only sucker in the world? <laughs> yes. All right, then, Alex. I'll give it to you. Hooray! Did you hear that, darling? Did you hear that, Harris? He's going to give us $4 million. Here you are, Professor. $1, $2, $3, years later. $1,993,000. $1,995,000. $1,995,000. $1,995,000. $3,999,998. Yes? $3,999,999. Yes, yes. And 40 cents. I don't think I can make it. <laughs> well, that's close enough. Thanks. Well, I gotta go now. Goodbye. Oh, wait a minute, Mr. Baker. Where can I reach you in case I need you again? In the poorhouse. So long. <laughs> Oh, boy. Four million dollars. I wonder how he could carry so much money in his pockets. He's got two pair of pants. Oh. Well, Harris, we've got the money. You know what that means? You know what all this money means to us? Yes, I can tie a can to my orchestra. Yes, thank heaven. <laughs> and it also means that I can finish my work, complete my invention. The telephone must and will be perfected. Let's go. <laughs> March 10th, 1876, in a public auditorium in Boston, Massachusetts, the first telephone, a crude instrument, stands on the desk before Professor Bell. For the first time in history, he is about to transmit the human voice. Quiet, gentlemen, please. I got a chance. Now, gentlemen, all I ask of you is to have patience. You are about to witness the most amazing demonstration of our time. Gentlemen, please. Bring it on. What are you stalling for? Yippee! Young man, I'm introducing a telephone, not a fan dancer. <laughs> now, gentlemen, in just a moment, I will transmit my voice by wire to Professor Homer J. Osgood, who is waiting on the other end of this line in Baltimore, 500 miles away. Oh, oh, Silence, please. All right, gentlemen, the experiment begins. Mr. Harris, lift the receiver. Yes, Professor. <laughs> hello. Hello, Baltimore. Baltimore, hello. Hello, Baltimore. Hello, Baltimore. This will work. This must work. Hello, Baltimore. Baltimore, hello. Did you put a nickel in? Quiet. Gentlemen, please. Please give me a chance. Hello. Hello, Baltimore. Baltimore, hello. Boston Meat Market, your order, please. Get off the line. I want Baltimore. Don't worry, gentlemen. I'll get it. Hello. Hello, Baltimore. Hello. Hello. Jello. I said hello. And I said jello. Hang up. I want Baltimore. Don't get disgusted, gentlemen. This will work. This must work. Hello. Hello, Baltimore. Baltimore, hello. 
Baltimore, hello. 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 Hello, stranger. At last. At last, at last. Professor Osgood, can you hear me? What? I said, can you hear me? Am I coming over? Don't come over this week. We got relatives. I mean, am I coming over the wire? Can you hear my voice? What? My voice, my voice. Oh, my boy's fine. He's in college. No, 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 not your voice, my voice. Sound, sound. That's what I said. My son's in college. Look, Professor Odgood, this is Alexander Graham Bell talking. This is important. This is for the advancement of science. Now, if you can hear me, repeat this sentence. I hear you clearly. Have you got that? I hear you clearly. I love you dearly. Hooray! There you are, gentlemen. The telephone is a success. Ah, oh, what a triumph. What a dramatic situation. What a picture this would make. I'll buy it. Thank you, Mr. Zanuck. Play, Phil. <laughs> This is the last number of the 35th program in the new Jell-O series, and we will be with you again next Sunday night at the same time. Now, come on with me, Mary. I'm going over to the police station to get a squad of men to go out and look for my car. J. Edgar Hoover's in town. Why don't you get him, too? He's just the man I need. Good night, folks. Kenny Baker appears on the Jell-O program for courtesy of Mervyn Leroy Productions. Mug as a Bug is from the film The Gracie Allen Murder Case. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's The Life of Riley, followed by The Saint. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.